Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan. And once again, I am coming to you from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia. And I've been teaching A&P at Bucks County Community College since 2002. This is episode 35 of the podcast, and um, it's taken quite a while to get here. Uh, Thank you so much for staying with me. I actually started this podcast back in the fall of 2019, and now it is the winter of 2024. So four and a half years to get to 35 episodes. Kind of a big break in the middle there. Uh, COVID was one of the reasons, and also finishing up my project with McGraw-Hill Education was the other. That project is fully available now. It is called Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite. Uh, It's being used by multiple universities and colleges around the U.S., and uh, hopefully uh, it will continue to pick up traction and students will be able to utilize it for all that it's worth. It is basically an alternative to a traditional print textbook where everything is digital, including the content delivery, which is delivered by approximately 150 tutor videos that I've made over the years, which are accompanied by a study guide style bulleted narrative summary of every video. So hopefully students are using it and getting a lot out of it. It is a good cost savings from a traditional paper textbook, and it also can be utilized with any textbook that anyone wants to use it with. So anyway, so that was the reason why we had such a big uh, break. But uh, but episode 35, it's kind of exciting. We're still in the endocrine system, and we're going to talk a little bit about specific hormones and specific endocrine glands right now. But But I do want to get into something really interesting to me, and that is the discovery of hormones. So I want to start today's episode off with talking about when and how hormones were discovered. You might be kind of surprised to know that hormones were discovered as recently as 1902. Now, I know that seems like a really long time ago, but if you think of how long humans existed and how long medicine was treating people for diseases, and then think about the fact that it's only since 1902 that we even knew what hormones were. Now we know of well over 70 hormones and we know that they control everything in your body from regulating your blood sugar to regulating whether or not you are going to be fertile and whether or not you can produce offspring. It regulates your cellular metabolism and your body temperature. It regulates whether or not your cells are undergoing mitosis and repairing your tissues and growing. It is extensive how much this chemical messenger system is controlling. And you can see that simply by looking at all of the different organs that secrete hormones. Everyone's pretty familiar with the pituitary and the thyroid and the adrenals and all those things, the pancreas. These are classic endocrine glands. However, the heart, the skin, the skeletal muscles, the kidneys, the liver, they all secrete hormones. They're all utilizing this chemical messenger system. In fact, the first hormone ever discovered was a digestive hormone. 
and it's called secretin. And it was discovered in 1902, and the word hormone was first used in 1905. So what I want to do is I want to actually read a quote from someone who was there when they discovered secretin. And this was actually written in the obituary of Ernest Henry Starling, who was one of the guys who discovered the first hormone. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to explain it. I happened to be present at their discovery. In an anesthetized dog, a loop of jejunum was tied at both ends and the nerve supplying it dissected out and divided so that it was connected with the rest of the body only by its blood vessels. On the introduction of some weak hydrochloric acid into the duodenum, secretion from the pancreas occurred and continued for some minutes. After this had subsided, a few cubic centimeters of acid were introduced into the enervated loop of jejunum. To our surprise, a similarly marked secretion was produced. I remember Starling saying that it must be a chemical reflex. So basically, what this person's referring to was that they took a stretch of the small intestine called the jejunum, and they tied it off, and they took away its nerves. So it only had connection to the rest of the body through the blood vessels. Then they put some hydrochloric acid into the duodenum, which is another stretch of small intestine before the jejunum, and found that the pancreas started secreting pancreatic enzymes for digestion. That showed that even though there was no nerve connection, that the message was getting to the pancreas that we needed to do some digesting. And it had to have been getting there through the blood. So then they were able to isolate the secretion from the jejunum and inject it into the jugular vein of the animal they were experimenting with. And they found that the pancreas responded again. This is how they discovered a chemical messenger traveling through the bloodstream. And they named it secretin, which is a digestive hormone, which does exactly what you just learned about. So I find it amazing that we existed for so long without knowing what hormones were. And the reason why they took the nerves away is because about 10 years earlier, they discovered neurotransmitters. So they knew that there were chemical messengers and the nervous system was using them. And now they found out that the bloodstream was also utilizing chemical messengers, or I should probably say it this way, chemical messengers were also utilizing the bloodstream so that target cells could be reached from specific glands and organs. All right, so I think it's kind of fun to talk about the history a little bit, uh, especially when it comes to discovery, because without these people discovering things, there's not a whole lot for us to study. So let's give it up to uh, the people who discovered hormones because they really opened a door for medicine in terms of treatment of so many conditions. Having said that, I think now we move into among the most powerful of structures in the human body when it comes to the endocrine system, and that is the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. Now, this is one area where, if anywhere, structure dictates function because the anatomy and the relationship anatomically between the hypothalamus and the pituitary really tells us a lot about how they're going to work. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the anatomy first. 
Now remember, the hypothalamus is part of the brain. So it is, it is one area of the diencephalon. It is inferior to the thalamus, and it is just superior to the pituitary gland. So the pituitary gland, if you remember from when you were looking at the brain, you probably also looked at the pituitary gland because the pituitary gland is suspended from the hypothalamus by a structure called the infundibulum. Sometimes people call that the pituitary stalk. And the pituitary gland sits in this little bony cup of the sphenoid bone called the cella tersica. So it's got a really good skeletal protection right there. Now in that infundibulum, we're gonna find not only blood vessels, but also axons. Because the pituitary gland is not just an endocrine structure, but it also has very specific nerve tissue in it because some of the hormones that it releases actually start off in synaptic vesicles of axon terminals. So it's really unique in that way, and we're going to talk about that. But the anatomy is really important to understanding that. All right, so we've got this hypothalamus, and again, it is inferior to the thalamus. It is a lower part of the diencephalon. It's just above the midbrain of the brainstem. And if you went outside of the brain, you would see the pituitary gland sitting right there. So there's a little structure in the hypothalamus called the median eminence, and attached to that is that infundibulum. The hypothalamus not only has an enormous number of roles in the central nervous system, but it also regulates the pituitary gland by secreting hormones into blood capillaries that are coursing through the hypothalamus. And then those blood capillaries lead to venules that go through the infundibulum and into the pituitary gland. And then those venules lead to secondary capillaries. So we've got primary capillaries in the hypothalamus, a set of venules, and then we have secondary capillaries in the pituitary gland. So that the hormones that are released by the hypothalamus, they don't have to wait until they circulate around your entire body and eventually come in contact with the pituitary gland. They're actually directed right to the pituitary gland through this system of blood vessels that we call a portal system. So whenever we have blood vessels that don't follow the typical artery, capillary, vein format, we call that a portal system. So we have arterial, capillary, venial, capillary again, venial, then vein. So we've got an interesting setup here, but it's specifically there because the hypothalamus needs to influence the pituitary gland quickly. It can't wait for the blood to circulate throughout your entire body. So we call this the hypophyseal portal system. And the reason why we call it that is because another name for the pituitary gland is the hypothesis. I'm going to spell that for you because it's a little difficult. H-Y-P-O-P-H-Y-S-I-S, -I the hypothesis. And the pituitary gland is divided into two different regions. There's an anterior pituitary and a posterior pituitary. 
The anterior pituitary is glandular. It is made of glandular epithelium that is going to secrete hormones. It's going to synthesize and release, that's secrete, remember, secrete these hormones into the blood circulation. So we also call the anterior pituitary the adenohypothesis. Adeno means glandular. We also have a posterior pituitary, which we call the neurohypothesis. And that's because the posterior pituitary is actually made up of axon terminals and axons that extended from the hypothalamus through the infundibulum and into the posterior pituitary. So it's actually nerve tissue. And in those axon terminals are synaptic vesicles and in those synaptic vesicles are chemicals produced by the hypothalamus, but stored and released by the posterior pituitary. So we'll get to those eventually. This is an important distinction, the anterior versus the posterior pituitary. And the axons that go down that infundibulum, that pituitary stalk, are bundled together and called the hypothalamohypophyseal tract. So it's a tract, like a tract of axons, like we talked about back when we talked about the spinal cord. Now, the beginnings of the neurons who have their axons in the posterior pituitary are in the hypothalamus. And remember, when we have a bundle of neurosomas or nerve or cell bodies of neurons and dendrites in the central nervous system, we call that a nucleus. So we've got two hypothalamic nuclei that have axons extending into the posterior pituitary. And they are called the supraoptic nucleus, which is just above the optic chiasm, which is part of the optic nerve pathway, and the paraventricular nucleus, which is just next to the third ventricle. Remember that the hypothalamus is the floor of the third ventricle of the brain. All right, so let's discuss the hypothalamic hormones that are traveling to the anterior pituitary gland. The hypothalamus produces what we call releasing and inhibiting hormones. These hormones are solely for telling the anterior pituitary gland when and when not to release their own hormones. So we have hormones that tell the pituitary gland to release something and hormones that tell the pituitary gland not to release something. We call that inhibiting. So let's talk about some of these hormones. Now, I know it's going to get a little confusing, but sometimes it's really hard to talk about what the hypothalamic releasing or inhibiting hormone does without talking about what the pituitary hormone that it's telling to release or inhibit does, right? So I'm going to be going back and forth, and you're going to see that yes, we're gonna get into the pituitary gland because it really doesn't make much sense unless we do these together. So the first one is thyrotropin-releasing hormone, or TRH, that's the abbreviation. As you can imagine from the name of it, thyrotropin-releasing hormone tells the pituitary gland, the anterior pituitary, to release thyrotropin. So thyrotropin has another name. Thyrotropin is also known as thyroid stimulating hormone, or TSH. 
That is the hormone that the anterior pituitary gland secretes. Its target is the thyroid gland, and it stimulates the thyroid to secrete T3 and T4, the thyroid hormones that regulate your metabolic rate. So thyrotropin, also known as thyroid-stimulating hormone. Now remember, from a previous episode, we talked about what it means when a hormone has the word tropin in it, or tropic hormone. That means that that hormone targets another endocrine gland and stimulates it to release another hormone. It's simply a hormone that stimulates the release of another hormone. So thyroid-stimulating hormone is also known as thyrotropin because it targets the thyroid. So the hypothalamus secretes thyrotropin-releasing hormone to the anterior pituitary gland. So when thyroid hormone is low, your body is going to alert the hypothalamus that we need more thyroid hormone. The hypothalamus will then secrete thyrotropin-releasing hormone It'll go into the blood vessels that go directly to the anterior pituitary gland, into the hypophyseal portal system, and target the anterior pituitary gland and stimulate it to secrete thyroid-stimulating hormone, which then targets the thyroid, and then the thyroid secretes T3 and T4. Thyrotropin-releasing hormone also promotes the secretion of prolactin, or PRL. Prolactin stimulates milk synthesis by the mammary glands of the breast. All right, so that's hypothalamic hormone number one. The next one is corticotropin-releasing hormone. So again, let's take corticotropin apart. Tropin. Tropin means it targets another gland to secrete a hormone. Cortico, it's the cortex of something. So corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH, influences the release of adrenocorticotropic hormone by the anterior pituitary. Adrenocorticotropic hormone, remember, think of that word, tropic, adrenocortico. So now we know that that hormone's target is the adrenal cortex. Just superior to your kidneys, each of them, you've got a gland called the adrenal gland. The adrenal gland has two distinct anatomical parts. The middle, that we call the adrenal medulla, and the outer portion, that we call the adrenal cortex. They're very different, and they secrete very different hormones. The adrenal cortex secretes what we call the cortical hormones, or the adrenocortical hormones. These are corticosterone, cortisone, things like that. Aldosterone is another one. So the anterior pituitary gland influences it by secreting adrenocorticotropic hormone, or ACTH, which then stimulates the adrenal cortex to release its hormones, which we call the glucocorticoids. All right, so that was corticotropin-releasing hormone. Comes from the hypothalamus, goes into the hypophyseal portal system, targets the anterior pituitary gland, and stimulates it to secrete adrenocorticotropic hormone, which then targets the adrenal gland, specifically the cortex, to secrete glucocorticoids. All right, the next hypothalamic hormone is gonadotropin 
releasing hormone, or GnRH. Now, again, tropin, gonado, these are the hormones that target the gonads, which are the testes and the ovaries. Gonadotropin releasing hormone is released by the hypothalamus into the hypophyseal portal system, goes to the anterior pituitary gland, and promotes the secretion of follicle stimulating hormone, or FSH, and luteinizing hormone, or LH. Follicle stimulating hormone targets the ovaries in biological females and stimulates the maturation of ovarian follicles every month so that 20 or so egg cells start maturing inside ovarian follicles. It also stimulates sperm production in biological males. We also have luteinizing hormone. That's the other gonadotropin. Luteinizing hormone in biological females stimulates ovulation, the rupture of one of those ovarian follicles so that one egg cell gets released for a possible fertilization. In biological males, luteinizing hormone stimulates testosterone secretion by the testes. So those are the gonadotropins, FSH and LH. They come from the anterior pituitary gland, and they are influenced by gonadotropin-releasing hormone coming from the hypothalamus. The next one from the hypothalamus is growth hormone-releasing hormone, GHRH. It promotes the secretion of human growth hormone by the anterior pituitary gland. Human growth hormone targets lots of different cells and stimulates secretion of another chemical called insulin-like growth factors from the liver, from the skeletal muscles. It stimulates growth and also tissue repair. The hypothalamus also secretes growth hormone inhibiting hormone, which has another name that we call somatostatin. Statin means stay the same. Stasis, stay. Somato means body. So somatostatin basically means let your body stay the same. So it's the inhibition of human growth hormone. So somatostatin, also known as growth hormone inhibiting hormone, goes from the hypothalamus into the hypophyseal portal system to the anterior pituitary gland and inhibits the secretion of growth hormone. And then the last one from the hypothalamus to the anterior pituitary is prolactin inhibiting hormone. This inhibits the secretion of prolactin, which is the one that we said stimulates the mammary glands to produce milk. So we have thyrotropin releasing hormone, which promotes the secretion of prolactin, and prolactin inhibiting hormone, or PIH, which inhibits the secretion of prolactin. So those were six hormones from the hypothalamus that influence the anterior pituitary. But there are two more hormones that the hypothalamus produces. And they're produced in those nuclei I mentioned earlier. The cell bodies and dendrites of the neurons that go from the hypothalamus through the pituitary stalk into the posterior pituitary, also known as the neurohypophysis. So there are two more hormones. One of them comes from the paraventricular nuclei, and that is called oxytocin. 
abbreviated OT. And the other one comes from the supraoptic nuclei, and that one is called antidiuretic hormone, or ADH. Now, these hormones are produced by the neurosomas of those nuclei. Then they travel through the axons of those neurons, which travel through the pituitary stalk and then have their axon terminals in the posterior pituitary gland. Those chemicals are stored in synaptic vesicles in those axon terminals until nerve signals from the hypothalamus travel down those axons and stimulate the release of those chemicals. And from those synaptic vesicles, they actually make it into the bloodstream, which makes them a hormone. We call them posterior pituitary hormones because they're released by the posterior pituitary, but they are not synthesized by the posterior pituitary. They're synthesized by the hypothalamus. So I will always say that those hormones are released by the pituitary, not secreted because secrete implies that they are also synthesized by the same tissue. That's how I distinguish them. But others might just use the word secretion a little more liberally than I do. All right, so what do these two hormones do? Oxytocin has a few different uh, roles. Oxytocin stimulates labor contractions. So when uh, someone is giving birth, to a newborn, the contractions of the uterine muscle are stimulated by oxytocin, particularly in a positive feedback system that the stretching of those muscles by the fetus's head is triggering a reflex that results in oxytocin release that then increases the strength of contraction of those uterine muscles. So it's what we call a positive feedback loop. The result actually enhances the stimulus that caused the loop in the first place. Uh, it also is involved in the release of milk from the mammary glands. And it might be involved in sperm transport, sexual affection, the bonding between a mother and an infant, ejaculation, all of these things also might associate with oxytocin. Sometimes you will hear people call it the love hormone because it might be associated with the affection that two people have for each other or that a mother has for an infant. And then the other hormone from the posterior pituitary by way of hypothalamus is antidiuretic hormone or ADH. This one targets the kidneys and stimulates the kidneys to reabsorb more water and produce less urine. So antidiuretic means you're going to release less water. So it basically functions in water retention. Antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, comes from the posterior pituitary, but is synthesized by the hypothalamus and targets organs that have a control over water retention. For example, ADH will target the kidneys and stimulate them to produce less urine so that we retain more fluid. It also targets the skin and reduces sweating. So 
ADH is really about maintaining fluid volume. Now, keep in mind that some people think that ADH secretion increases fluid volume, but it doesn't. All it does is maintain what you've got. The only way to increase fluid volume is to actually add more fluid to your body. So in times of dehydration, not only will there be ADH secretion to hold on to as much water as possible, but the hypothalamus will also make you feel thirsty. So that will stimulate you to add more fluid volume to your body. Now what's interesting about ADH is that without it, we would produce 10 times more urine than we actually produce in a day. And the actual stimulus for ADH secretion isn't necessarily dehydration. It's the changes in blood pressures that are caused by dehydration. For example, when your body is low in water, that means that the concentrations of solutes in your body's fluids will be higher. That raises your osmotic pressure. So osmoreceptors in the body are looking for these situations. And when the osmolarity gets too high because fluid volume is too low, then it will stimulate the release of ADH. When hydrostatic blood pressure, which is the amount of fluid in your blood vessels, putting pressure on the walls of your blood vessels and the walls of your heart, when that gets too high, we will inhibit ADH secretion because we don't want to retain more water if there's already a very high fluid volume causing an increase in hydrostatic pressure. So these are the things that stimulate ADH secretion and inhibit ADH secretion from the hypothalamus and posterior pituitary to affect your body's fluid balance. Since we're still in the posterior pituitary, let's get into a little bit more detail on oxytocin because you've probably heard of this one. It's been in the news a lot over the last few years as the love hormone. Oxytocin plays a role in a lot of different reproductive functions. Um, so we know that it also assists prolactin in the ejection of milk from the mammary glands. So what's known as the letdown reflex, when a crying infant stimulates the auditory receptors in a lactating mother, it can actually stimulate the ejection of milk from the mammary glands through the nipples. In addition, it seems to surge during sexual arousal in biological males and females. So that's an important one as well. And it seems to have some function in the emotional bonding between partners as well as between new parents and infants, including fathers. So there seems to be some kind of father-child bonding that promotes uh, the paternal relationship with a newborn and motivates that father to take care of children. Um, we also know that there's an emotional bonding between the mother and infant because oxytocin is being released after childbirth, and that seems to have an effect. And it's not just humans. This seems to have an effect in other species of mammals as well. All right, one more hormone I want to get into from the pituitary because it's the main thing that the anterior pituitary is doing, and that is growth hormone. So much of the anterior pituitary is dedicated to human growth hormone. And human growth hormone is mostly concerned with stimulating mitosis and the differentiation of cells so that cells can 
continue to divide and make new cells. And that's how our body grows. And it's how our tissues repair themselves. So by maintaining our body's tissues, by repairing our body's tissues, and for growth, this is what we're using human growth hormone for. Remember that human growth hormone is stimulated for release by growth hormone releasing hormone from the hypothalamus. And it is inhibited by growth hormone inhibiting hormone, also known as somatostatin, also from the hypothalamus. Now, growth hormone doesn't go right to the target cells and stimulate growth. What growth hormone does is it stimulates the liver and other tissues, like muscle cells, to release their own growth stimulants called insulin-like growth factors. Those then stimulate other target cells, and that is what initiates the processes that are essential for cells to divide and for cellular differentiation. Growth hormone is released in its highest quantities during deep sleep. Not during REM sleep, don't get that confused. REM sleep is rapid eye movement sleep, and that is a lighter sleep. That's usually when we're dreaming. Deep sleep is when there's no rapid eye movement and typically no dreaming. This is when growth hormone is released in its highest quantities. So when you hear someone who is still growing or someone who is trying to recover from an illness or an injury, they say you need your rest. Really, when you're in your deepest sleep, that's when you're getting the most growth hormone release. So the processes happening in the cells that are stimulated by the insulin-like growth factors are protein synthesis. So we want to increase the rate of synthesizing proteins because tissue growth requires that. Right? In order for a tissue to grow, we need to make new proteins. We also want to liberate energy. And we do that through lipid and carbohydrate metabolism. By metabolizing lipids, we can free up all the energy that is stored in those lipids. And the same thing goes for carbohydrates. So that way we can synthesize ATP at the rate that we need it to maximize our capacity for growth. Also, we want to make sure that our electrolytes are balanced because the sodium, potassium, chloride ions, for example, we want the kidneys to hold on to those so that way they're available for our cells to do their jobs. Mostly what we see growth hormone acting on are things like bone, cartilage, muscles, um, especially when, when you're a kid and when you are still growing. That's when we see the, the biggest effects of something like growth hormone. As we get older, the amount of growth hormone that we synthesize and release declines. So it's harder for tissues to recover when we get older. All right, so that should do it for the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. Thank you so much for listening, for subscribing, for downloading. I really appreciate that. I hope that this information is helping you get your beer better in A&P so that you can move on in your academic careers and be successful. Don't forget, if you have any questions for me, please feel free to write to me at minus55media at gmail.com, and I might answer your question on a future episode. So thank you so much again. Good luck, and I'll talk to you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel 
Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology, already being used at several colleges and universities.